We'll be reading from Colossians 1, 9 through 14. This is Paul speaking. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in his share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Our gracious God, uh, we thank you for Jesus Christ and the prophet of our faith who has come to speak to us the word today. He alone is our great hope in salvation in this life. We praise you for making Jesus Christ our priest who has laid down his life and is even now today interceding for this congregation by name and by individual, bringing them before his Father, praying for them, interceding for them, sustaining them in this life. And we thank you for Jesus Christ the King, who rules our lives, who rules this church, and who rules this world. God, we pray that Christ would be our hope today, that his word might come to us with an ever-increasing power and clarity. That our hearts be transformed, our minds shaped, and our lives conformed into this beautiful prophet, priest, and king, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, J.C. Ryle began his book on prayer with the ever-penetrating question, Do you pray? Want to be stirred to pray? Pick up J.C. Ryle call to prayer. It begins that book, as I just said, with the ever-penetrating question, do you pray? Prayer, in my estimation, is the hardest thing to do in the Christian life. It doesn't feel like you're really doing anything. You feel like nothing's being accomplished. Give me a book to read, a Bible to study, a ball to play, and I'm good. I can do that. I can see progress. Prayer, not so easy. Prayer is all by faith. Which is why I'm ever grateful for prayers we find in Scripture like the ones we see here in Colossians. This prayer and many others give us fuel to pray. They give us words to say, content to lay before our God. These prayers in Scripture, including Colossians 1, they take us above ourselves and our lives and what we're struggling with, and they focus our hearts upon the glory of God. They're filled with truth that on a good day, I couldn't muster in prayer. 
And I suggest to you today that Paul here gives us a prayer for the Christian life. That's the theme for today, a prayer for the Christian life, a prayer that you might make your own, whether in private, a prayer closet at home, with your family, with your friends, your sweet mates, that you might come to enjoy spending time with God in prayer. This prayer contains uh, three components. A focused plea, a boundless hope, or excuse me, a boundless help, and a glorious gospel. A focused plea, a boundless help, and a glorious gospel. Number one, a focused plea comes from verses 9 and 10. And so he says, Paul says, From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So Paul's plea is for you to have an ever-increasing Knowledge of God. That's what Paul is laser focused about. He wants you to have an ever increasing knowledge of God and his will, what he is in himself and what he is for you in his works. Did you mention it or did you see it? He mentions it twice. Look again. Verse 9. That you may be filled. I'm asking, Paul says, that you may be filled with what? With the knowledge of his will. And in verse 10, I'm asking that you bear fruit in every good work and increasing in what? The knowledge of God. So I suggest again that Paul plea is for you to know God. And Paul is not alone. This has been the plea for the church for ages. And I'm going to give you three Bible texts to support that and three quotes from those gone before us, okay? Bible text number one. You can turn there if you like. Jeremiah 9.23. Jeremiah 9.23. Here is this weeping prophet. And the Lord says to Jeremiah, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Right? But let him who boasts Boast in this, that he understands and knows me. So you can gain power, you can gain money, and you can gain wisdom. And Jeremiah's focused plea, like Paul's, is for you to come to understand and know God. 
Bible text number two, Hosea 6.3. This is a short one. You don't need to turn there. Let us know, Hosea says. Let us press on to know the Lord. A lot like Paul, with an ever-increasing knowledge of God, Hosea says, let us press on. Let us remain forward. Let us continue on. Let us remain steadfast to know him. And lastly, Bible text number three, Psalm 27, 4. You can turn here. Psalm 27, 4. Well-known text, I'm sure, to most of you. Psalmist says, one thing have I asked of the Lord. What What would be the one thing for you? One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to meditate, to inquire in his temple. The psalmist's focused plea, like Jeremiah, like Hosea, and like Paul, is to come to know with an ever-increasing knowledge of what God is, and not just what he is, but what does he say? Oh, to dwell in the house of God, to gaze upon the Lord's beauty, and to meditate, to inquire in his presence, in his temple. That's the one thing the psalmist wants, is to know God. So one quote from church history, the first one at least. Jonathan Edwards at age 27. God himself, Edwards says, is the great good which the saints are brought to possess and enjoy. He is the highest good and the sum of all that good which Christ purchased. God is the inheritance of the saints. He is the portion of their souls. God is their wealth and treasure, their food, their life, their dwelling place, their ornament and diadem, and their everlasting honor and glory. That's a 27-year-old. He continues, they have none in heaven but God. He is the great good which the redeemed are received to at death, in which they are to rise to at the end of the world. There is nothing wrong with praying for health and safety and marriage and friendships. Nothing wrong. But I think you would agree with me that our prayers aim far too low today. Edwards, like Paul, wants God, give me God, he says. God is my highest good. He is the great good that Christ purchased for me. Christ laid down his life and his blood for you to know God. Second quote from history, C.S. Lewis, taking a little bit different angle. 
For my own part, I tend to find the doctrinal books often more helpful in devotion than the devotional books. That's fascinating. And I rather suspect that the same experience may await many others. I believe that many who find that, quote, nothing happens when they sit down or kneel down to a book of devotion would find that the heart sings unbidden while they are working through a tough bit of theology with a pipe in their teeth and a pencil in their hands. Yay for pipes, I guess. <laughs> Lewis is saying, if you want your heart to sing unbidden, don't go to the devotional books. Get yourself a tough piece of theology that takes you above yourself and takes you right to God. One of the reasons I think we are stagnant and dry in the Christian life is because we are bored. Third quote from history, Charles Spurgeon. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ, him crucified, and the knowledge of the God and the glorious Trinity. Wow. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. Spurgeon is saying, if you want your soul to expand, in Lewis's words, if you want your heart to sing unbidden, oh, then get your nose and your mind and your heart in the face of God and Jesus Christ. Seek to know him. Remember that, back to Colossians, remember the issue that the Colossians were facing. Many came along to the Colossians and said, I know the key to spiritual fullness, to spiritual maturity. And the answer was a never-ending technique. Sound familiar? Get this book, buy this, do this, go to asceticism. Don't go to asceticism, chapter 2. And right here, Paul says, you know the key to spiritual fullness, Colossians. Do you know the key to spiritual fullness, brothers and sisters, today? It's not in the never-ending technique of the Christian life. It's coming to know God deeper and deeper in him. So what is the goal then? What is the aim of our knowledge? If the focus plea of Paul is the knowledge of God, what is the, what is the aim? Well, he says there in verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. So the goal of knowing God is pleasing God. 
The goal is not to have big heads so that you walk in the room and you're just bumping into each other. Okay? The goal, look at Paul again, is to please God, to have a life that adorns the gospel, that bears fruit with every good work and increases with the knowledge of God. This is, this is the goal, to please him. And my friends, don't leave your theology at the door of exegesis. When Paul says fully pleasing to him, it's not as though your life well, let me put it like this. It's not as though God is deficient in something such that when you walk in a certain way, you're, you're, you're filling God up with something. Does that make sense? God, God is pure actuality. He's say He's of himself. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need your life. So when it says that the text, that when we walk in a certain way that pleases him, the idea is that because God never increases or never diminishes, when we walk in a certain way and come before him to drink of this ever-overflowing fountain, when we drink of him, he gives us the grace to walk in a certain way that we would never would. So in actuality, God is being glorified in his own grace in you. He's actually taking pleasure in his own work in you. You're not adding anything to him. He's of himself. So God gets the glory in Piper's words, and you get the satisfaction. So friends, make this focus plea yours. Make it be about this church as well. We have focus plea to know God and walk in a way to adorn the gospel. Second, Paul then turns to a boundless help. A boundless help. Verse 11, um, just backing up in verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Here it is, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. So Paul prays, do you see it, Christian, that you would be strengthened with the glorious might of God which is what I'm calling your boundless help. Did you hear it? Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And given what we know about the Christian life, it's frustration, it's vexation, it's confusion, it's difficulty, to have this boundless help as we walk this life, as we have this glorious might of God in Christ, must be absolutely music to our ears. To be strengthened according to God's ever-present might. When Christian, in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, uh, goes to the interpreter's house. Classic work, Pilgrim's Progress. You've got to read it if you don't have it. Or buy it and then read it. When Christian arrives in the interpreter's house and the interpreter takes him to a room and Christian sees a fireplace that's 
raging and its flames are hot and high. And before the fireplace is a man who's dumping water on the fire. Remember this? And Christian is confused as to why the flames are as hot and high as they are, given that this man is pouring water on the fire. Well, interpreter then takes Christian around the fireplace to behind it, and Christian sees a man pouring oil on the flames. An interpreter tells Christian, that man you see behind the fireplace is the Lord Jesus Christ, and your life is like the fire. The devil does all he can to douse your life in this vexing world to throw water on the flame of your faith, but who is behind us with a garrison of his grace pouring oil and imagery of the Spirit of God, might we add, to cause you to walk in a way with its boundless help. It is the Lord Jesus Christ fueling you and pushing you forward such that the devil's work is actually frustrating. We have a boundless help in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is the aim? What is the goal of this boundless help that we have? Look there, verse 11 again, for all endurance and patience with joy. The goal of God's boundless might or boundless help is that you would joyfully persevere The goal is not to eliminate this vexing life as much as you want it to be. The goal of God's boundless help is for the vexing things of this life through God's glorious might to become sanctifying things in this life. Isn't that amazing? The goal is not to eliminate the frustration of life but rather through his boundless help make the frustrating things of this life, the sanctifying things of this life, so that Romans 8.28 is true, that all things work together for your good. How? Because of God's glorious might on your behalf. So that even prison... Or sickness or losses or crosses will not stop your endurance and patience and joy. In other words, the flame, the fire of your faith will continue to rise higher and hotter because of the Lord Jesus Christ. At age 20, uh, George Matheson was engaged to be married, but began going blind. When he broke the news to his fiancée, she decided she couldn't go through life with a blind husband. She left him. In God's special providence, George's sister offered to care for him. With her help, George entered the pastoral ministry and wound up preaching to 1,500 people each week, blind. 
The day came, however, in 1882 when his sister fell in love and prepared to, for marriage herself. The evening before the wedding, George's whole family had left to get ready for the next day's celebration. George was alone and facing the prospect of living the rest of his life without the one person who had come through for him. On top of this, he was doubtless reflecting on his own failed wedding day 20 years prior. In the darkness of that moment, George Matheson wrote a hymn entitled, we sang it, O love that will not let me go. He said afterward that it took him five minutes to write and that it was the only hymn he ever wrote that required no editing. Beautiful, huh? And my question after hearing that story is how could George Matheson have such joy and patience in the midst of such circumstances. I think his hymn gives us a clue. Verse 2, if you want to pull your liturgy out. Of, oh, love, that will not let me go. Verse 2, O light that followest all my way, I yield my flickering torch to thee. My heart restores its borrowed ray that in thy sunshine's blaze its day may brighter, fairer be. There's the boundless help. Our lives are like a flickering torch, are they not most of the time? This is how you feel. And yet in thy sunshine, in God's mighty, boundless help, blaze this day. God sustains us by the Lord Jesus Christ and his grace in this life. And so we have the boundless help of our God as we live the Christian life. Third, we turn now to the glorious gospel. We've seen a focused plea and a boundless help. Lastly, we see just a, a glorious gospel. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who have qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Quickly, beloved, I just want to point out four traits about this glorious gospel. And then we'll close. You see first that the Father has qualified you. Paul gives thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. He declares you eligible. You became fit. You met the standard. He's qualified you. It's a wonder of wonders, is it not? Everything in your life and everything in my life screams that I'm disqualified from sharing the inheritance of the saints in light. But that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that the Father has qualified you 
to be his. Galatians puts it like this, 4-4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. We were disqualified under the law, but God sent forth his son to meet that standard and to qualify us to be his. There's a standard to be met, and Christ did it for us. He has delivered us, verse 13, from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. He brought you. I'm just trying to use words to communicate what this verse is saying. He took you from the domain of darkness and relocated you. He, he transferred you, it says, to the kingdom of his beloved son. Again, you had no escape. No one was coming for you. Nobody. You yourself could not get out. But Jesus, there's that that name again. That person of the gospel. He comes and with all of his love and goodness, He comes in this domain of darkness and he defeats the devil and takes you away to be with him. And now you're a part of this indomitable kingdom that will never end. What a glorious gospel. No one was coming. But only one, Christ. Do you make the gospel part of your prayer ever? You ever just burst out? Oh, I give thanks for this glorious gospel. By free grace, I'm saved. Three, verse 14, uh, 14, in whom we have redemption. In whom we have redemption. We have freedom. The ransom price was given. Jesus took his life and his, and his blood and he, took it to the law of God and said, here, this ought to do it. This ought to do it for the sinner. My life and my blood. You can take it, law. I know what it means. And now we're free. It's in Christ we have redemption. It's in Christ we have freedom. We have freedom to love God, free from guilt. Oh, the blessing of a clean conscience. No condemnation. We're free from the guilt of sin and free to lay down your life for Christ. 
for. The forgiveness of sins. Lastly, the forgiveness of sins. Um, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We have full pardon for all of our sin. That's amazing. Full pardon for all of our sin. I believe it, beloved, though I do not see it. How about that? But so perfect is the forgiveness of all our sins that in Scripture it is spoken of as a remembering no more and a casting behind one's back. You know, in Ecclesiastes, we learn that we didn't know much about our future, right? Other than we're going to die. But there's one other thing I learned about my future. One other thing I know about it. I'm going to sin. And there's one thing I know about my father. He's not going to count it against me. Do you understand that? He's never going to count your sin against you. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Gracious God, we struggle to find words to describe the riches of your word. Lord, I pray for this congregation that we might have a knowledge of you, that we might know your help, we might know the gospel. That we would give thanks to the triune God for all of it. In Christ's name.